cash is going to become worth less over time. But good businesses are going to become worth more over time. And you don't want to pay too much for them, so you have to have some discipline about what you pay. Uh, but the thing to do is find a good business and stick with it. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Today we're going to talk about someone who I think it's fair to say is a legend in the world of business and in the 20th century in general. Someone who was for a very long time the richest person in the world. I mean, I knew this person was influential, but I didn't exactly know why or what they did. That person is the legendary investor Warren Buffett, who's now in his mid-80s. Ian and I recently read Alice Schroeder's excellent biography of Warren Buffett and found it really interesting. We were discussing it personally, so I thought we'd do a pod on it. In this episode, we're going to pick a few points that spoke to us and discuss them a bit. We'd love to hear your thoughts as well. If you haven't read the book yet and want to, we'll link to it and other resources in our show notes at tropicalmba.com slash Buffett. At that post, you'll also find links to the annual letters that Buffett wrote to his shareholders at Berkshire Hathaway, which was the name of his investing company. But one of the really interesting things that Warren Buffett does is write these annual letters, and they explain everything that the company's doing. They're really eye-opening, and so we're going to link to those. They go the whole way back to the 1970s. So let's get started. The biography we're going to be referring to throughout the show is called The Snowball, and the title refers to Warren Buffett's own description of finding success. So here it is. The snowball just happens if you're in the right kind of snow, and that's what happened with me. I don't just mean compounding money either. It's in terms of understanding the world and what kinds of friends you accumulate. You get to select over time, and you've got to be the kind of person that the snow wants to attach itself to. You've got to be your own wet snow, in effect. You'd better be picking up snow as you go along, because you're not going to get back up to the top of the hill again. That's the way life works. start off by reading an excerpt from the book. And I think with most of our points here, we'll read a little excerpt that I think relates to some of our findings. So here it is. Be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy, but don't think you can outsmart the market. If a cross-section of an American industry is going to do well over time, then why try to pick the little beauties and think you can do better? Very few people should be active investors. This is the type of quote that you read on the internet about Warren Buffett. And you imagine like what a stock market trader might look like nowadays. So when he says, pick little beauties, you might be thinking, oh yeah, he's clicking on a Scott Trade account. And that account is selecting you know, some random company that you know nothing about, but you're going to buy some of their shares because they're in a good growth industry. One of the things that really came through in the stories of his investments for me is that he never was investing in stocks. He was investing in companies. Even at the very beginning of his career, it was always a prerogative of his to come in and be a meaningful, influential shareholder in any company that he took a position in. 
And this is something that really surprised me because I kind of assumed that Warren Buffett was either somebody who had either cracked the nut of the stock market or kind of like got there while there was still fat to be had. But through hearing the stories of his life, I realized that no, actually what he was doing is a little bit more like partnerships. Yeah, and a little bit more entrepreneurial. I mean, he was essentially buying stock, but a lot of times when we talk about stocks today in the stock market, you and me, we can't afford to buy enough stock to be a primary shareholder in any of these companies. Right. But what he was doing was going in and buying enough stock in this company. So he was a majority shareholder or he was a very meaningful shareholder in some of these companies and therefore he had control of the company. That's right. Or the ability to influence the company or the marketplace in some way. So if you want to ask for like, what's the takeaway? Because a lot of this is like, well, Warren Buffett was doing all this in like 1960, right? So how can you translate it into, you know, 2016 terms? And for me, it means like, first off, don't buy stocks at all, right? It means ask yourself, are there smaller companies in your industry or adjacent industries that you could come in and partner with? and take a meaningful share and benefit in the growth of that company. You know, you could imagine us taking this advice, Ian, and like buying a company or taking a significant board position in a company that provides marketing services for entrepreneurs. And then we just mentioned the company on the podcast, we can affect that stake that we have in that company. Does that make sense? That's essentially what he was doing. I had the same total misconception, too, as you, Dan, of what Warren Buffett was doing. I imagined him in the 1950, 60 version of Scott Trade, you know, with this newspaper like circling stocks, you know, calling his broker and saying, hey, buy this for me. Kind of like an arbitrage move. It seems like it wasn't that at all. You know, he was actually buying interests in these companies. And so, in that way, I think of Warren Buffett now a little bit more as like an entrepreneur and a business owner and less of a stock trader. Here's a second excerpt, Ian. The big question of how people behave is whether they've got an inner scorecard or an outer scorecard. It helps if you can be satisfied with an inner scorecard. Ian, do you remember this movie, Wall Street, and the character Gordon Gecko? Oh, yeah. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. I think about this idea that we have in the culture of who these money-hungry traders are, and they're very competitive souls, very concerned about outdoing others, because in many ways, the way they look at trading is as a zero-sum market. If you win a trade, somebody lost a trade. There's somebody on the other side of your trade. And that's not how, like we said, like what Buffett was doing was moving into companies that he believed in and then riding the upward trend and affecting it in any way he could. In many ways, he affected the upward trend later in his career just by his good reputation. It's like, well, if Warren Buffett thinks that this is a good company, it must be. It can't fail. But all that said, what's fascinating, when you look at the Berkshire letters, there was this moment when Jeff Bezos became richer than Warren Buffett. This was around like 1998, 99, 2000, before the dot-com bust. And certain entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos and Silicon Valley were becoming richer and Bill Gates than Buffett. So all of a sudden, Warren Buffett shows up on Time Magazine and the journalists are calling him this Luddite, like this old befuddled man when it comes to technology, right? Like that's basically how they were positioning him. And 
to read his letters, like I went back to the 1998 letter, for example, like to see his good humor, steadfastness, honesty, straightforwardness. It was just really refreshing. And he didn't strike me as someone who was fundamentally out to one-up other people. It was always this strong central drive and this sense of self-worth that pervaded everything he did. And that's something that I just admire so much in entrepreneurs in general. And that's why, you know, we've featured people on this program that have chosen to do less because it's not always like a scorecard trying to outdo the next person, even though Buffett ended up at the top of the heap. I do get the sense that he had a very strong internal sense of integrity and who he was throughout the whole process. Yeah, it's so hard to do these days with Facebook and Instagram and Twitter is try not to compare yourself to these people that are around you. And I think Buffett didn't consider himself competing with other multi-billionaires, you know, like who's got the biggest yacht. Warren Buffett famously still lives in the house that he bought in Omaha back in the 50s or 60s. Very modest house, so not a flashy guy at all. He also stuck to the things that he knew about. And that was what he said to his shareholders in the letters. Like, look, we don't know about these things. And just because everybody in the world is yelling at me that I ought to know about it and that other people are getting rich doesn't mean that all of a sudden we should throw away everything that we've worked for and that we know about and try to behave like other people. Right. Exactly right. And he was famously not investing in these companies because he said, I just don't understand it. Right. And I'm not going to invest in anything that I don't understand. And I think that's admirable to not just jump on the bandwagon and try and do what others are making money at. You get a sense when you read these letters that this is a guy who is comfortable being honest with himself. Here's another quote, boss man. He thought of partners as people who had come together out of a complex of shared values and interests, not out of short-term economic convenience. Ian, have you ever had a relationship fail because it was based around short-term economic convenience? Most of them. Most of them (laughs) fail because of that reason. (laughs) In the book, The Snowball, Warren Buffett, one of his mentors was Benjamin Graham, who is the author of The Intelligent Investor, which is a very famous investment Bible. But also kind of a snore fest, to be honest. I yeah. tried. I really tried. <laughs> I don't want to be wrong about this, but I think it was written like back in the 40s or something like that. Yeah, well, let me share you an anecdote about that book. This guy was a professor, right? So this is a phenomenon that I think a lot of people can relate to. I think our friend Taylor Pearson from taylorpearson.me shared this story with me, so I want to give him credit. And if it's not true, it's still worth telling, so I'm just going to tell <laughs> I didn't fact check this, but the idea was like he wrote this book as like the manual for like how you should be a smart investor. And he wasn't like rich because of his investments. He was just someone who knew the rules of investing, so to speak. Well, the punchline is, is that because he became a quote famous investor through this book, he got access to great investment opportunities. And so paradoxically, it wasn't all the strategies he wrote about in his book, but it was the book itself that led to his ability to get great positions in investments. And you see that happening in our industry all the time as well. Right, which is basically you do something remarkable and then you get famous for it, but then you become famous for another reason or you become successful for another reason. It's not necessarily the reason why you got there. So what does this have to do with Warren Buffett? (laughs) Sure. So Benjamin Graham wrote this book, The Intelligent Investor, and Warren Buffett always looked up to him. 
And Warren Buffett at one point applied to work there. I think he was crushed when he didn't get the job. And then eventually came around and he did get the job and he got to work for Benjamin Graham, blew the socks off Benjamin Graham and his partner. And at some point was offered the job to run Benjamin Graham's company when Benjamin Graham was getting ready to retire and Warren Buffett turned down the opportunity. And I thought that was really interesting. And the reason that he said he turned down the opportunity was he came to his company to learn and be mentored by Benjamin Graham. And if Benjamin Graham was leaving, then there was no reason for him to stay there. And so he went back to Omaha. And I think that's like really telling of what Warren Buffett's motivations were and where he was headed in life. So I think he probably had the opportunity to make Benjamin Graham and himself a ton of money at that firm. But for him, it was more about learning. And I'm trying to put myself in that position, Dan. I think it would be really hard to walk away from that kind of opportunity, right? It's like you live your whole life looking up to this guy, learning from this guy. He finally hands you the reins to his company. And Warren Buffett essentially, in my mind, had enough confidence to say, like, I can do better than this guy and I'm going to do it for myself. And I just thought, wow, that's confidence. One thing to think about what Warren did when this was all happening in New York and New York was not only the center of the financial universe, but it was the end of the financial universe, you know, for an American in those days. And he went back to Omaha. And I thought it was fascinating at that point, particularly when you make that break from your mentor and you realize it's time to do your own thing. Sometimes your own thing might not have a precedent. And that was certainly the case for Warren Buffett. Speaking of things that you're supposed to do in the book, it describes Warren as like still basically not having any employees in a multi-million dollar company. (laughs) He's like going to the bank and to the post office to like cash checks. I mean, he really wanted to be the center of these organizations. I just couldn't imagine that, right? It's like, well, Warren, you've got so much potential upside here doing the thing that only you can do, and yet you're still putting stamps on envelopes. But I think he just really loved the entire process of it. And the original point was really about how he valued relationships, and you can see that throughout the course of his career, that this was a person who stuck with people they had a genuine affection with, valued loyalty over all else, and really played the long game. I laughed when his partner, Charlie Munger, said that their basic rule has always been that we don't deal with a-holes. Yeah. I think you've mentioned that a few times in the past as well. Don't do it. Charlie Munger, who became Warren Buffett's partner, if we talk about loyalty for a second here, they went back and forth, I think, for like 10 or 20 years as friends and as sharing information before they became partners. All right, boss man, for our final point, I want to read an excerpt from one of Berkshire Hathaway's annual letters. He said, Charlie, Charlie Munger, that is, Charlie and I have easy jobs at Berkshire. We do very little except allocate capital. Mind you, he's writing this to all of his shareholders. And even then, we are not all that energetic. We have one excuse, though. In allocating capital, activity does not correlate with achievement. Indeed, in the field of investments and acquisitions, frenetic behavior is often counterproductive. Therefore, Charlie and I mainly just wait for the phone to ring. Our managers, however, work very hard, and it shows. Naturally, they want to be paid fairly for their efforts, but pay alone can't explain their extraordinary accomplishments. Instead, each is primarily motivated by a vision of just how far his or her business can go and by a desire to be the one who gets it there. Charlie and I thank them on your behalf and ours. Why do we bring this up? It was remarkable to me. There's this quote that is famous from Buffett where he says, the difference between successful people and really successful people is that really successful people say no a whole lot more. It's a paraphrase. And it's this idea that 
they stayed ruthlessly focused. Like it was so rare when his role expanded. A few times, like he would step into a leadership role just during a crisis period, like billions were on the line. But more often than not, they lived the way he described it, waiting for the phone to ring. Very, very focused on making good decisions and about asset allocation. If you're going to be the best in the world at asset allocation, you can't be sitting in brainstorm meetings with somebody who's supposed to be running your companies all day long. I'm going to form a hypothesis here, Dan, though, that the reason why he was able to do that was because he also understood enough about what a CEO should do in a company to be successful. And at the beginning of the book, it describes Warren's upbringing, and he was an entrepreneur. You know, I think at some point he owned a car washing venture. He owned a couple other small businesses back in Omaha before he became a big-time investor, and he understood how to run a business. And I think that's in part the reason why he felt so comfortable in the role that he was in and then having other people be CEO, because I think he could identify a good CEO, obviously, but he just had no interest in filling that role. You think of this person who's just trading, right? That's the myth and the legend. But the reality is this, this entrepreneurial human who's run many, many businesses. It's fascinating to see someone that he could easily have stepped in and helped out. And he just was disciplined about not doing so. And that's something that I really struggle with because if I know about something, sure, I'll jump in. I'll help out. Therein lies the value in the quote. You know, do you want to be good at something or really great at it? Goes without saying that Warren Buffett was really, really great at making money. So give me your book review. One out of five stars, how would you rate Snowball for Entrepreneurs? I can only rate for myself because I thought for me, like I was interested in learning more about this guy that I'd only just kind of heard about. And so, yeah, I'd probably give it a four. I think it was a great opportunity for me to understand what his definition of investor is. And here's something else that I've taken away recently just from watching new and old Mark Cuban videos. The more I learn about investing in the stock market, the less I want to do it as like an investor that doesn't own a majority stake in any of these companies. You know, I watched like a video of Mark Cuban the other day and he's just like basically like these guys have teams of analysts and computers and whatnot that are basically gaming the system. And if you think that as an individual investor, you can beat them, you're absolutely wrong. I'm just not willing to put in the time, Dan. I think that you'd probably have to put in 10 to 12 hours a day to even come close to understanding a fraction of what these guys understand. The more I read about Warren Buffett and the more I hear from guys like Mark Cuban, the less I want to get into the stock market, honestly. If we were to say, okay, let's say somebody's got 100 grand and they want to emulate some of Warren Buffett's strategies, you know, number one, don't spend your money. (laughs) Number two, Buy a controlling stake in businesses that you don't have to run. And there are businesses that you can buy a controlling stake of for 10, 20, 30, 40 grand. You just got to know what you're looking for. That's really the genesis story. At the beginning of Snowball, they talk about these companies called cigar butts. They were essentially companies at the stock market, like didn't really value anymore, but They felt like if they could find them, they could take one more puff. You might say, well, the reason people invest in the stock market is it's so legible. Well, for Warren Buffett, finding a cigar butt was not a legible process. The amount of research, learning, and understanding that went into that process was astounding. Now, if I went to a listener of the show and made a similar challenge and say, look, make a $20,000 investment to gain a controlling stake in an internet marketing company. The amount of research, effort, and knowledge that would go into that is probably less than it would have taken for Warren to find one. You just got to know what you're looking for. 
that to me is a little bit how their process can be distorted by the times because we think, oh, he must have just been pouring over stock charts because that's kind of what a contemporary retail investor would do. And that's not what he was doing at all. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I want to point something else out, Dan, that I learned from this book. And this has to do with how conservative or not conservative Warren Buffett was in some of his investments. It seems to me that during most of his career, he was fairly conservative in the way that he invested in some of these companies and his position too. I think once in the book where it seemed like he had a fairly large cash position and he wagered a lot of that on a merger, which turned out to be successful. But for the most part, like Warren Buffett, and I think this is really important, had a ton of cash on hand and was not completely leveraged in whatever he was doing. Yeah, I can give the poker analogy. He was tight, aggressive, and he was sitting at the table with a big stack. And what that means is that you don't play a lot of hands. In fact, you fold the vast majority of hands. But when you get into the pot, everybody knows you're there. I felt the same way. There was certain investments that he made in the book that actually had like a little shot of anxiety just reading the story, thinking about myself in that situation, like, oh, I don't know if I'd risk that much. He really pushed when he went in. He didn't go in small. He didn't. But most of the time, I think that he was sitting on a fair amount of cash. I think that was a good lesson for me too, which is like, yeah, you want to win and you want to go home a big winner, but you don't want to risk everything you've worked for in the past for that to happen. You know, that said, like there's very few times in the book that describe Warren Buffett as a loser and as not picking the right companies. And I think that that just has to say a lot about his due diligence and his process. So when it appears, I think, Dan, that he was risking a lot, even in the book, I think that he had done enough homework that he felt almost 100% satisfied that it was going to pay off in the end. That's a very difficult thing to do. And I'm not sure exactly how he was so right so often, you know what I mean? Because it just seems so difficult. But my guess is that he really put in the time and the research that most people aren't willing to put in. And therefore, most people are going to lose money nine times out of 10. Hey, so thanks for joining us. Do you have any investment insights, some anecdotes or quotes from Warren Buffett that inspire you? We'd love to hear from you. This one will be posted at tropicalmba.com slash Buffett. And we will be back next Thursday morning. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.